Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the show. It was very upbeat, wasn't it? It was. That's what we like. It's the momentum we're trying to... It was the 90s. Yes. Nothing but the 90s continues. The 90s were nothing if not upbeat. We need to make sick and gnarly sounds like Radman. <laughs> was, was that all the 60s? Totally tubular. No, that was the 80s, wasn't it? I guess, yeah. What was the 90s? It was all Kurt Cobain and grunge and Spice Girls. Spice up your life. Because those are two things I put together. Hey, when I think the 90s, I think Kurt Cobain was head blown off. Jerry <laughs> Alliwell in a United Kingdom dress. Right. <sighs> and that's pretty much it. Oh, and the X-Files. Okay. Oh, and Beverly Hills Dino, so you want to... Right. That's the 90s. It's like a, a slightly more colourful Apex turn video. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Have we done anything interesting this week? I uh, no, we haven't ever. No. We've just you've just slept because you're still on holiday. You lazy work. I've, I've, not, I've not been sleeping to be honest. You've so. not. You've been in bed till two <laughs> a.m. p.m. Whatever. I've not been sleeping. It's the headaches, man. It's oh no, it's too much, man. You weren't there. You're in a room with a noisy McNoisicus. <laughs> Is that a lesser known dinosaur? <laughs> yes, yeah. The noisy McNoisicus. Spurscus <laughs> is a lesser known brother. <laughs> I'm noisy McNoisicus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll just go straight into the email section of the show. Stephen Lacey emailed it, which is good, mm-hmm. because today we're covering a Fantastic Four comic, and it was weird doing a Fantastic Four comic and thinking Stephen's nothing to do with that. Yeah. So that was that was very strange. So it's nice that he's here. Seven Soldiers of Misdirected Blame. Oh, it's a Seven Soldiers email. That was a while ago. It was. Hey, Leyland, who shows up for recording sessions, and Leyland, who doesn't. I'd, I always show up for recording sessions. Except for the two times you've been asked on Fantasticast. And both <laughs> times, you've not shown up. <laughs> I love watching you squirm. It's not that I didn't show up. It's that you just didn't, you weren't there. It, I, I don't think, if Ori Stephen did, I apologise, it didn't get through our agents, the paperwork didn't get through our agents, and so I was not informed of uh, when to show up or what I was showing up for. I think you were. It's until when? Yeah, I think you were. Okay, for the fantastic, the the the, the, the Silver Surfer. Silver Surfer, yeah. Yeah, 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 but that's only one out of two times. And the other time you just didn't show up. You're like a pop star, I can't, I can't, aren't you? I can't remember the other time. Pop stars just show up when they want. Doesn't yeah. matter. Anyway, should we read Steven's email? Yeah. A, a wizard is neither late nor early. He is exactly where he wants to yeah, be, yeah. exactly when he needs to be there. Like the TARDIS. It never takes you where you want to go. Takes you where you need but to you be. Need, when you need to be there, mm-hmm. you're there. As you probably know, I've been listening to Hey Kids since episode 15. Only 15? There's 14 episodes that you've never listened to. <laughs> Unless he has. Unless he has, yeah. Certainly enough to tap at one of the hosts to join me for a Fantastic Four podcast. 
It's hard to think of a series of episodes that I've been anticipating more than the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Unfortunately, I'm having to write this email after episode two, as a holiday means I won't get around to episode three for a few weeks. Seven Soldiers was my first Grant Morrison title. I'd read chunks of his JLA, was aware of his Doom Patrol and Animal Man, and had got all of his new X-Men in trade, but this was the first time I was aware of a big project by him, and I wanted to get in on the ground floor. As a result, I bought every single issue of Seven Soldiers as it came out. I love this series. My personal highlights are the Shining Knight to Zaytana and Frankenstein minis, especially Frankenstein. Oh God, Frankenstein is good. It opened my eyes to a lot of new artists, one of whom, Doug Mankey, became my favourite artist for a long time. More importantly, it opened my eyes to a different way of reading comics. It was great reading sideways across the issue, seeing plot threads start in one mini and then be referenced or continued in another. I still remember the moment in the Guardian boot where the dice show up and I connected them both to Clarion and to Zatanna. The delays before the final issue didn't help things, and sadly my memories of the conclusion of the series aren't as ingrained as the core miniseries. Who'd have thought it? A J.H. Williams III boot with delays. I also wanted to correct a letter writer who blamed Grant Morrison for the psychotic, murderous incarnation of Talia Al Ghul. Morrison didn't rewrite continuity to suit his story. He worked with elements already introduced by previous writers. In the miniseries Death and the Maidens by Greg Rucker without by Klaus Janssen, Nissa Al Ghul, a previously unseen and disowned daughter of Ra's, kidnapped Talia and repeatedly murdered and resurrected her in a Lazarus pit, brainwashing her to help her kill her father. The story left Talia very much on the side of the villains, accepting her role as the daughter of the demon, and led into a villainous role in Under the Red Hood, Infinite Crisis, and beyond. Until we decide we should reread Strange Tales for the Fantastic Cast, make mine Hey Kids Comics, Steve. Well, thank you very much for your email. And should you decide to do that, you'll be looking for a new co-host, quite frankly. Thank you very much, I enjoyed that. See, somebody did email in about Seven Soldiers. Yeah. I think there was only Chris, uh, Chris Franklin, who emailed in about something other than Stephen, isn't there? <laughs> Never mind. Our next email is Gene Hendricks, just cloning around. Andrew and Michael, or Mike and Andy, whichever works. As of today's episode, I am now 100% caught up with your show, and I wanted to say how much I have enjoyed it. It's always nice getting varied perspective on comics, especially from two people that obviously love the medium. Thanks to you, I have some comics that I want to search out to read for the first time, dig out to read again, or avoid like the plague. (laughs) I wonder which comes into which category. The most recent episode made me want to do the first, since I've never read any Clone Saga, regardless of the decade it was published in. It sounds interesting, even with all its quirks, and it is defiantly part of my Bronze Age blind spot, trademark Michael Baylor, that I want to correct. Of course, I might just bite the bullet and start with Amazing Spider-Man number one and get to it organically, but that might be too much. Pause for Andy telling me to do it the proper way, regardless of my reasons not to. I look forward to the next show, and I'm both happy and sad that Michael will be staying at home for school. Happy because I get to keep listening to a show that I've just got current on. Sad because I know he'll miss out on some experience by not living away from home. It's been interesting to hear his growth on the show, time compressed through my listening. I especially like how I don't know who has edited the episodes together unless I'm told. That speaks well for both of you. I look forward to listening at a more sedate once-a-week pace from now on, since it will be a nice Thursday treat rather than my constant companion during the day. Keep up the great work, and I'll keep listening. Gene, host of some podcasts <laughs> on the Two True Freaks Network. Go check them out, they're very good. Uh, just to clear up, Michael, as we said last week, is not leaving this year, only because he's doing another year. I need to do this course to do the course at uni. To get on your fine art course. Yes. Alright. Fair enough. Next time! So he's around for another year, is basically what I was saying. And then I'll bugger off and live out. And then you'll bugger off and live out. See, your dreams will finally come true. Sat here, talking to an empty room, 
Oh, you mean like you already do already on that other On my other that? show, The yes. Palace of Glittering <laughs> Delights, which is also available on the Two True Freaks feed. That was good. Well, it is an excellent show. No. I always just sound bad when I'm plugging myself, don't I? It's not worse. You do it, it. You do it so uh, naturally, though. Do you think? Yeah. All right, it's an excellent show. It's hosted by me, so of course I would think it was excellent. <laughs> I do it all on my Billy Todd. Michael's not here, which is sad, but he's not really interested in talking about Elliot Smith and Jones or War of the Worlds, are you? I, I like War of the Worlds. Okay. It's just you always do it without telling me. I'm, you've already written it, recorded it, and edited it by the time I wake up. Because yeah, it's just me, dude. I can just whack it out Stop like that. Stop being a morning person. I hate people like you. <laughs> Yeah, Michael Bailey says that to me as well. <laughs> when I'm happy to get up at five o'clock in the morning yeah. to record a view from the long box with him. And he just growls at me because I hate people. It's like because you. of people like you that I can't go can't stay asleep in the morning. Why? Why is that my fault? Because of all the noise you make. Shut up. <laughs> I just I just think you should, everyone should be an early the, the human race, the virus that is the human race, right. has not got up and spoiled planet Earth at five, six o'clock in the morning. You can go outside and pretend it's the beginning of the day of the Triffids and that most of the, the entire planet has been wiped. Like 28 days later. Yeah. You wake up and pretend it's 28 days later. The flip side of that, though, mm. if you're still awake at 3, 4 in the morning on a weeknight, everyone's in bed. Yeah, I suppose it's the same thing. It's different when it's at night, though. When it's morning and light like it is in summer, it's brilliant. Because you can really imagine the rest of the world's been wiped out <laughs> and we're like commanding. Yeah. That's, that would be cool. In a very morbid kind of way. <laughs> it's not that I want the entire human race to be wiped out. Just bits of it that I don't like. Select people. Yeah, selected people. Selected people that I could pick and choose with my own <laughs> Tantalus device that I could wipe out at a whim. And I think the world would be a much better place. For you. <laughs> Uh, Chris Franklin's emailed in. I think I'm a clone now, which I totally stole for the second Clone Saga episode because I thought it was great. I think I'm a clone now. It's a weird Al Yankovic song, I think. Is it? Yeah. Uh, oh, clone. Yeah, I right, think oh, I'm a clone oh, right, now. Okay. Rather than I think I'm alone now. Yeah, right, You're okay. thinking of Tiffany? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And it was a cover then, wasn't it, when was Tiffany it? did it? I think it was. I, I could be wrong. I'm not up on Tiffany's oeuvre. Right, right. Um, you know, uh, is that not how you say it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. You just make a noise. The, 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 the catalogue of Tiffany works. <laughs> I'm not quite up to date with them. In fact, I think I know that one song. Fair enough. I, I mean, for all I know, all she's ever done apart from appearing Playboy. Anyway, Chris says hello, Leylands. Hello, Chris. All that Aquaman Justice League Detroit stuff is entirely true. I couldn't make that stuff up. Because <laughs> you know, we, we thought he was yeah. making it up, didn't we? Ah, the original Clone Saga. I've only read bits and pieces of the issues you're going to cover, so I've really been looking forward to this one. Part 1 did not disappoint. Oh, thank you. I actually had the Marvel Tales reprint of Amazing Spider-Man issue 141 and always dug that cover. Maybe Morbius was on the cover since he was appearing in Vampire Tales at the time. The Spider-Mobile. I've also heard it was Mego that Stan was working with when the idea of a car for Spider-Man came up. The legend I heard had Stan upset over the proliferation of Batman vehicles Mego had released. The Batmobile, the Batcycle, the Batcopter, even the very odd mobile Batlab and Jokermobile, which were modelled after Volkswagen microbuses, and suggested Spidey get a car. Mego did give Spider-Man an amazing Spider-Car in both the 8-inch and 3 and 3 quarter inch lines. They also give Captain America a car too, presumably just to keep Stan the Man happy. Oddly enough, neither Migos nor Corgi's car look much like the comic Spider-Mobile. 
AHR's cheap friction-powered toy cars at least have Spidey in a red dune buggy. Peter's blue eyes should have been made into a plot point in the Clone Saga. During Mark Wade and Brian Augustine's run on Flash, they address colorists incorrectly giving Wally West blue eyes instead of green. By having Wally's alternate timeline twin Walter West, aka the Dark Flash, have blue eyes. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey shenanigans had the two switching spots and eye colour at one point in the storyline. I think that would have been a little bit confusing for readers in black and white. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that old joke, but snooker in black and white, and he's just about to pot the brown ball. And for viewers in black and white, that's the grey one in the middle of the screen. <laughs> I've always enjoyed Conway's work, continues Chris, but he would occasionally play fast and loose with plot points and characterisation if he needed to move things along quickly. Seems he's doing that here. Of course, I think he was writing about 150 Marvel books at the time, so we can forgive him. Looking forward to more. Are you going to cover the Conway penned coda to this saga from the late 80s spectacular Spider-Man annual? That was a weird one. It was totally thrown out when the 90s clone saga begun. Chris. Well, as you now know, <laughs> we covered everything, didn't we? Yes. The, the things evo- we shouldn't have covered. The, yeah, the evolutionary war, we covered that, and we covered Carrying My Wayward Son, which was a brilliant title. Best thing <laughs> about the issue, isn't it? Yeah. Carrying My Wayward Son. I haven't sung for a while. You've not. I feel the need to belt that one out. And um, the who was Carrying... We covered the lot. See what you missed if you didn't listen to it. It was, it was brilliant. That's if, one word for it. <laughs> Our next email is Kirk Gruenwald, The Clone Saga, Part 1, A Clone Again, Naturally. Haven't found time to listen to this episode yet. Moving on. <laughs> Does that joke ever get old? No. All right. <laughs> uh, but I noticed something. If Gwen Stacy dies circa Amazing Spider-Man 121 and The Clone Saga begins circa 139, then that means that less than two years after they killed off Gwen, the powers that be at Marvel have already started the Deus Ex Machina to reverse themselves and give Gwen back, right? Doesn't this seem like turning around rather quickly on a dime, or was it because of intense fan pressure, or the concept of striking while the iron is hot? Just wondering aloud. Well, now you've listened to the episode, Kirk, you know all those answers. Stan basically made Jerry Conway do it. Wasn't his fault. Stan made it happen. Final email for this night is the mighty Luke Giaconetti. Some say he's a very, very big fan of the spider buggy. And that, given his druthers, he'd drive around in it all the time. All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetti. I'd drive around in a Spider-Mobile if I could drive. Would you? Yeah. Spider-Mobile, totally. We're all Spider-Clones, all are one, one are all. <laughs> Handy clone, Ugg, and Michael clone, Ugg, which was a reference to Wizard Comics and the disdain of the clone saga, Luke tells us. I cannot stress how excited I was for you guys to cover the original Clone Saga. As I've said previously, I got into comics for serious in the early 90s. So while the Clone Saga was not the first huge Spider-Man event I witnessed, that would be my personal favourite and ongoing sticking point between myself and Andy, Maximum Carnage. (laughs) Actually, didn't I say nice things about Maximum Carnage at some point last week? Did you? I can't remember. I don't think anyone was there to hear it. Probably not, no. To say this was a huge deal continuously would be something of an understatement. Having seen the major changes wrought by both the death of Superman and Nightfall, and then the big important events which went down in the X books, it seemed logical that Marvel would counter with some earth-shattering changes for Spider-Man. 
Whilst on the surface the idea of a clone of Spider-Man was pretty ridiculous to my young teenage brain, the aforementioned Wizard magazine ran an article giving the background on the clones. Now, as someone who only knew of Peter Parker's main squeeze being Murray Jane, and only knowing of the Green Goblin from his appearance on Spider-Man and his amazing friends, this article, which talked about the death of Gwen and the subsequent appearance of her clone, the Jackal's machinations, the clone of Peter and finally their climactic showdown, was a real eye-opener. As ridiculous as it sounds, it opened my mind a bit to the spider stories which had taken place before my introduction to the character in the comics, Amazing Spider-Man issue 300. The stories, as Wizard described them, sounded wild and wacky, with duplicates running all over the place with the jackal pulling all the strings. The piece itself painted those stories in a somewhat negative light, no doubt influenced by the clear editorial position that the clone saga was lame, but nonetheless it made me interested enough to check out the spider books and follow along. So you guys covering this clone genesis, as it were, is a real treat, and a great opportunity to learn more about the story which would make itself into such a sprawling saga for better and worse two decades later. These early stories seem like fun romps to me. Mysterio is a real comic book guilty pleasure of mine. I love his look and always have, ever since I saw him on Amazing Friends, and have long thought that Mysterio would make a perfect baddie for a Spider-Man film. I mean, a special effects guy as the villain in a special effects movie? Brilliant. Of course, Spidey would still beat him in a five-minute scene in the first act, but it'd still be cool. As repetitive as his shtick does get with the smoke and the disappearing all, I'm still a mark for it. And as much as Dan Slott generally rubs me the wrong way, I do have to say the increased emphasis that he placed on Mysterio's technological skills, including robotics, has grown his threat level quite a bit and kept him still relevant, at least as a plug-and-play Spidey foe, if not a world-beater. Paul Grizzly makes me think of the 1976 Jaws clone Grizzly, which is exactly the movie that it sounds like. Oh, should we watch that? Oh, okay. That actually sounds pretty good. Maybe you can tangle with Mangler, a minor Luke Cage foe who's also a pro wrestler with violent tendencies. I got my eye on the original Clone Saga trade, which collects not only ASM 139 through 150, but also the carrion stories from Spectacular. A little pricier, but you can still find it for $23 to $26 online. Not bad when you consider the size of the book. But as of right now, I'm totally jazzed to see where things go from here, what the Jackal has in store for Peter, and what old Webhead will do in return. Keep on cloning on, Luke. And um, that's the trade that we have, Luke, which I got for a tenner from Forbidden Planet when they reduced it in price. Which I just got, even though I've got all the original issues, I thought a tenner having it. Yeah. Because, you know. I have this thing where I don't like buying things twice, but every now and again I'll do it anyway. <laughs> Right, that about wraps it up for emails this night. We will do a uh, commercial break for somebody's show, and then we'll be right back. Calabac, Desaad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends, so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Dittrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast.
The 90s, in addition to being a decade of gimmick covers, overly muscled men and hyper-sexualized women, was also the decade in which the old was swept away in favour of the new, with wildly varying results. Replacing the main character for a storyline was a staple of the comics industry. We'd already seen James Rhodes take over as Iron Man and John Walker replace Steve Rogers as Captain America, but the 90s kicked off with one of the best. When Superman was killed by Doomsday, he was replaced by four potential replacements. The Kid, the Cyborg, the Last Son of Krypton, and the Man of Steel. For weeks, DC played this magnificent game where they headlined one of the four new Supermen in one of the four different Superman books of the time in one of the best orchestrated stunts of this kind ever published. What's good enough for Superman is good enough for the Batman, and even before Superman's body was cold, Nightfall saw Batman broken and discarded by Bane and cast aside for a newer model, Jean-Paul Valli. Valli became a more brutal Batman in what was dismissed at the time as a stunt, but what I think is quite a potent and provocative storyline, not only for giving the more bloodthirsty 90s readership a Batman that had no qualms about killing, but for its satirical swipe at the -the over-the-top nature of its competitors' comics. Speaking of competitors, Marvel, seeing DC's success with these multi-part long-form storylines, embarked upon their own replacement story for their flagship character, Spider-Man. Painted into a corner by Peter Parker's marriage, Marvel felt that Spider-Man's status as a young hero needed reaffirming and embarked upon the Clone Saga. Ostensibly begun only to be a six-part story, the sales success of the plotline had Marvel spinning it out for an interminable amount of time, introducing more and more outlandish and laughable plot twists, and taking a story that had a good central idea and turning it into the poster child for 90s excess. Unlike DC's tales, this story never had a clear and concise ending prepared, resulting in an editorially and sales-driven mess rather than a creative endeavour. These replacements were just the tip of the iceberg. There was a new Wonder Woman, a new Green Arrow, and a new Batgirl. In some stories, the replacement was only ever meant as a stopgap. In others, a more permanent solution to what was perceived as a greater problem. One such problem was Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern of Sector 2814, a.k.a. Earth. The editors at DC at the time, as explained in the letters page for Green Lantern issue 50, felt that Hal had few stories that were actually about him, instead being stories about events happening to him. The solution? Hal would snap following the destruction of his hometown, Coast City, turn against the Green Lantern Corps, killing them all in the process. He then snapped the neck of arch-adversary Sinestro and barbecued fellow Green Lantern Kilowog. In a last-ditch effort, the Guardians placed the last power ring in the hands of a new Green Lantern. The all-new Green Lantern, it all begins here, states the cover of Green Lantern issue 51, cover dated May 1994. Sean Engel has already covered this on just one of the guys, but hey, it's a good example of what we're talking about, so we hope Sean won't mind too much if we step into his patch for a moment. Daryl Banks and Romeo Tanghal provided the cover. A younger Green Lantern with jet black hair zooms towards us from out of a power ring construct. His costume is not the costume of old, being a more regular black body stocking with white chest pieces. The boots have knee pads and the gloves look a little cumbersome and useless if anyone fingerprints him, but it's a decent look. The mask looks like a slab of metal over his face and not at all comfortable, but it's not as laughable as the X-Force costumes, and those elements aside, it seems almost practical. He's swooping in over the Hollywood sign, which presumably signifies an L.A. setting. Nothing gets past me, does it? Hmm. 
Seems unusual that DC didn't take this opportunity to go for a cover enhancement, although they did it with issue 50, so they may have not wanted to gouge their readers two months in a row. If only others had shown such restraint. Did you like that cover? Yeah. You see, because the Green Lantern symbol behind him just begging to be a hologram yeah. or foil enhanced or die cut or something like that, isn't it? Mm. I originally did think we'd only got the new stand edition of this and that there was another version that was enhanced, but no. It was just that. It was just this, yeah. They did a cover announcement for issue 50. They didn't think they, they wanted to do one for issue 51. Kind of begging for it, though, wasn't it? A little bit, yeah. Isn't it? Do you like that cover? Yeah. It's all right, isn't it? Similar to Green Lantern 1 and Green Lantern 50. Well, that's presumably the point, Yeah, I would have imagined. Changing the Guard had art by the same team that did the cover, but it was written by Ron Mars. Outside a nightclub, a blue dude in a red dress gives freelance artist Kyle Rayner a green power ring that bestows upon him a green, black and white uniform. Kyle thinks this is all pretty cool, but it's his ex-girlfriend, photojournalist Alex DeWitt, who seems to be more concerned. She has to explain the whole Green Lantern thing to Kyle, but when all's said and done, she's agreed to move to New York with him to make a go of this superhero photography deal. The next day on Rodeo Drive, Alex follows a news report that a man in a suit of armour called Ohm is siphoning the electrical grid and tearing up the town. Kyle leaps into action as Green Lantern and is beaten up and down the street for his troubles. Kyle quickly starts to put together how to use the ring and then starts fighting back. This he does quite swiftly and when it's all over he laps up the attention of the crowd. Later, Alex points out that the crowd loved not him, but the Green Lantern of old and if he's to make his mark he needs his own look. He complies and Alex wonders where it's going to go from here. Well, for a start, we're going to go to the Slabside Island Maximum Security Penitentiary, where Mongol has broken loose vowing to kill Superman and the Green Lantern. Issue opens with a narration box that says, My name is Kyle Rayner, which kind of begs to be followed by, I used to be a spy, or after five years on an island, or some such. Did that not come to you when you were reading it? When it kicked off with that? No. My name is, insert name here. Um, Anyway, Kyle's wearing the standard Green Lantern uniform. And he's being flung through a window. Mars setting his stall out early that Kyle is new to all this. And cluing the reader in that this is some kind of uh, in-media res beginning. Because on the cover he's not wearing that outfit. Mm -hmm. He's wearing a different outfit completely. I know nothing of artist Daryl Banks. Uh, and very little about Romeo Tanghal. I know Tanghal used to ink Perez on the Teen Titans. Either way, I thought the artwork for this issue was very clean and crisp and easy to follow. After last week's comics, it was a refreshing change. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's very burn in places. But that's no bad thing, mm-hmm. I didn't think. If the Green Lantern uniform is a ring construct, how does it rip? Yeah, I don't get that either. Or is, is it standard cloth? I, I don't know. I don't, because I thought, does he make the the ring make the costume appear, or is the costume... Well, maybe it's kind of symbolic, like when he's construct shatter. Possibly. Yeah, and it could explain why he makes himself a new uniform later on. Mm. All right, we'll go with that explanation. It's symbolic. Uh, Ohm is a relatively sedate design by 90 standards. He's a typical 90s android exoskeleton. And I love that he looks like he's got dreadlocks. Yeah. Which makes him look like Predator. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's he looks practical. I do like his name. Given, his, given his power. Given his power set. It always makes me think of Om, the Om <laughs> song from Red Dwarf. Om. 
whenever I see that. But yeah, he was decent enough. He's only there to beat up and then get beaten up. But he does, he he performs that function admirably. We then go into flashback mode. (laughs) Unlike with Jerry Conway's Spider-Man work we covered a couple of weeks back, the in-media res beginning here totally works for the story. Kicking off with an action set piece and then going backwards to fill the reader into what's going on. The dynamic between Alex, Kyle's ex, and Kyle works very well with Mars delivering the requisite amount of exposition in a satisfying way. Kyle comes across as a little dense in this scene, not recognising the Green Lantern's uniform, but maybe he takes no notice of the news. He just may be one of those guys who don't watch telly. Yeah. Maybe he's busy drawing all the time. Well, he doesn't live in Coast City either, so... I think you'd know if Coast City had blown up, Yeah, though. yeah, yeah, but you wouldn't know that Green Lantern was the superhero of that city. No, perhaps not. I mean, he may know of Green Lantern only tangentially. Although, given know. that you'd know about Coast City blowing up, you'd know that Green Lantern did it. Well, presumably. Oh, Mongol did, didn't oh, it? Oh, Mongol, yeah, but and this, in continuity-wise, how far after that is this, and how well-known... It's always the question, how well-known to the general populace is the stuff that we've read? Well, I mean, we know Coast City blew up. Yeah. We know that Cyborg Superman blamed Eradicator for it, because that was all televised. Yeah. But then, do the general populace know that Mongol was behind it? Was that ever told in a newspaper story? We don't know, do we? Don't know, yeah. So we don't know what they know. Although his girlfriend is a photojournalist. Yeah. So you think that that's probably why she's exposition monkey? Yeah. Why she explains all everything that's going on? Because um, she seems quite together. She's the template of the plucky girl reporter sidekick girlfriend. There's yeah. absolutely nothing original about her. In this particular she will, she story. will be quite original. Well, that's though, what I was. My, for the right reason. My understanding is let's not get too attached to <laughs> <Yeah>. her. <laughs> yes, for, for reasons that uh, we may come to later. Kyle's deal with Alex is basically the same as Spider Man Peter Parker. Alex takes pictures of him as Green Lantern and they'll split the money. Yeah. I mean, with Peter, he's not splitting the money with anyone because he is Spider Man, but the deal's pretty much the same. And there's a smattering of booster golds more mercenary traits thrown in yeah that Kyle is how can I make some money out of this but that's Kyle thinking how can he make money where it's booster gold it's booster gold thinking how does he make money yeah I'm, I'm not saying that any of this is bad I, I mean when we point out that Alex is just the archetypical girlfriend sidekick partner it's where he goes forward from this point with them there's nothing yeah. wrong with having archetypes as your characters because it helps you understand them straight off the bat. Yeah. If you have a, 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 a an archetypical character, your audience knows where they are. It's just then a case of what are you doing following this? Where are you going from this? And from this, Alex gets stuffed in a fridge. Mm-hmm. So he obviously had plans for her. Yes. <laughs> uh, the fight scene with Ohm is nothing special, although the art's pleasant. It's very clean and lovely to look at. Mars does some interesting things with Kyle's cocksure character. I especially like the ego trip he goes on when the entire crowd fawn over him after he wins the battle at the end. Yeah. I thought that was quite cool. Um, And the fact that Alex knows his secret straight away is a nice touch. Was that the first time this was done? So maybe I'm being a bit unkind. Don't know. Because it's standard now. I mean, all the way up to the new Man of Steel movie, Lois knows he's Superman straight away, doesn't she? Yeah. The Clark Kent disguise isn't there, as far as she's concerned. The girlfriend knows who he is from the get-go, and that seems to be standard for most parts. Um, so maybe I'm, maybe she was the first 
of this type. You know, where he doesn't play the whole secret identity game. Yeah. I don't know. It's possible. Um, it's a nice touch. It, it's implied that she's going to be a major influence on him and his superhero career. For Until issue. issue 54, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how long does she last? Three issues. Yeah. It's an enjoyable, enjoyable issue. It's an enjoyable read. The writing is crisp and straightforward with a few subplots set up for future issues. The final three pages is essentially a prologue for the next issue with Mongol snapping a few necks just for good measure. But it's not egregious because the first 19 pages tell a complete story. There's nothing here to make you think you've missed anything, mm-hmm. despite it being issue 51. And it's well written and, and quite compelling. I, I actually thoroughly enjoyed this. The art's clean and elegant and crisp, and all in all, despite being a carefully contrived stunt, it's a well-executed stunt. Unlike last issue, I actually want to read more of Kyle's adventures. Yeah. I actually thought that was uh, very, very enjoyable. What did you think? I liked it, and I like Kyle Reiner. Do you? Ever since I, reading I, Rebirth. I don't, I don't know a lot about Kyle Reiner other than, than that. I only knew what, what I know about him from Jeff Johns' and Morrison's JLA. Right. But no, I've always liked him. But this, it, it didn't feel like we were introduced to a new Green Lantern. It felt like we were introduced to Kyle Reiner, who will become the new Green Lantern. Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, think about it. Even if you're only a passing comics fan, you've got a vague awareness of who Green Lantern is and what he does. Yeah. It's the guy behind the mask that's going to bring you back week after week. Hmm. It's something that the Image comics, that we've not covered yet, but will, they got away from Secret If If Image have one big, long-lasting impact on comic culture, it's the minimalising of the secret identity. Yeah. And then, when we get to Marvel, Bendis has carried that on, because Bendis is of the opinion secret identities are stupid. Yeah. So he's got rid of them. But for me, the secret identity is the way into the story. You know, you can... You're relating to the person. Yeah, you've you've got as much wish fulfilment as you want by putting on a mask and climbing walls, or being able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, or even being Batman. But... In a lot of cases, it's Peter Parker that kept you reading Spider-Man. Mm. It's Clark Kent's issues with Catherine Grant and all that stuff that kept you reading in the 90s. It's the secret identity that gives you a relatable persona for you to relate to. And it makes the wish-fulfillment element that more compelling. Yeah. Because everyone has moments where they wish they could just rip off the suit and fly. And the minute you get away from that, there's nothing really there to keep you as an audience member as engrossed in the stories. The thing with it now is that they're making soldiers out of superheroes, so they yeah. don't have secret identities anyway. Well, I think that's what you, you said last week, that the Captain America at the minute, there's nothing to it because there's no other life. Yeah. He's Captain America all the time. He's working for S.H.I.E.L.D. all the time. There's no Steve Rogers subplots or anything. Oh, Sam Wilson now. Mm. He's going to be Sam Wilson. I mean, maybe the Sam Wilson stuff's going to be better. But yeah. I can't imagine it being, because doesn't he just work for S.H.I.E.L.D. all the time now? Does he? I think Don't, the arm work for just Shield? works for S.H.I.E.L.D., yeah. So you've no, you can't build up a, a private life. So what Captain America was fighting against in Civil War, he's now become... He's now running S.H.I.E.L.D. Well, no, he was fighting against the Registration Act. He wasn't fighting at S.H.I.E.L.D. per se. But the Registration Act, even though it's gone now, they're still all superheroes working as soldiers for S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. But he's not being required to give his secret identity. No, he's just doing it anyway. Yeah, so, well, you know, he never had one anyway, but... Yeah, so, I think spending a lot more time on Kyle in this issue 
that actually on Green Lantern isn't a failing of this particular story. And I actually wish more writers would do it. Mm. Give us time with the character as well as with the superhero. But that's just me, you know. What do I know? Uh, adverts, because this is a 90s comic. So there may be some interesting adverts. Then again, as we've learned from past issues, there may not be. There are no hot comics on the Warehouse sale ad, but there are hot cards. Oh, there is hot comics at the bottom. Oh, whoa. Oh, yeah, so there is hot comics. I completely missed that oh, big the, advert. The comics is made out of dynamite. Yeah, all right, so it's going to explode at any minute. There's hot cards, there's bestsellers, which is Birth of the Demon Nightfall, the standard stuff from the 90s. But the hot comics are Superman's Death and Nightfall, Sword of Azrael. Do you want a Sword of Azrael? Azrael is $20. For all four? For the, just for issue one? Right. That's a 50p book now, that isn't it? Yeah. Or a pound, it's not a cheap, it's not an expensive book. By any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I'm not seeing that a lot of these are the hot. What's hot about Shadow Man and Shadow Hawk? Yeah, yeah. Are they related? Shadow Man had a movie out. Did he? I don't Did know. He? I've not got a clue. I've never heard of Funeral Pyre. I mean, I know what a Funeral Pyre is, but I've never heard of it as a comic. They don't seem like particularly hot comics to me. That's a very disappointing advert. <laughs> How are we supposed to do that? Batman Spawn got a crossover. Uh, this one was by Chuck Dixon, Alan Grant, Doug Mensch and Klaus Janssen. Because it takes three writers to make Spawn. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, no, well, we'll get to that when we get to the image comic section. Yeah, I, I imagine that one didn't sell as well as the Todd McFarlane Frat Miller one. Yeah. But that's just me. Uh, just as a side of page 10, we almost see little Kyle. For some reason, Kyle decides to sleep naked on Alex's sofa. I, I don't, whatever, fair enough. Nice splash page of Kyle. The DC Universe page is dedicated to Jack Kirby, who died on February 6th, 1994. Two-page Green Lantern letters page, talking about the recent developments with the book. And uh, a Star Trek special written by Peter David. But other than that, the, the only other interesting advert is for Weird Science television show, which I never watched. I don't even know if we got it over here. How can you make weird science into a television show? I don't know. You never say weird science. They basically make a woman that looks like Kelly LeBrock. Okay. That's it. That's the premise of the, the film. Oh, maybe, but, maybe they spend an entire series thinking about the, the morals of what they've done and how to... No, they, they just think about how they can get in her pants. Ah, basically. I imagine it's a sex screwball slapped it. Comedy. Over the road at Marvel Comics, one of the founding titles and cornerstones of the Marvel Universe was Floundering. Created by Stanley and Jack Kirby in the early 1960s, the Fantastic Four were the launching pad from which the Marvel Age of Comics sprang, but the book had been hit and miss in terms of sales and creativity since Kirby's departure in 1970, and living up to the sobriquet of the world's greatest comics magazine was problematic. A key component in boosting sales with the Fantastic Four was always to break the team up in some fashion, and this had also been done before, with varying results with Luke Cage, Crystal, Medusa and She-Hulk all filling in for various members of the team over the years. Another sales-boosting gimmick was to bring in a hot new artist. So a surefire way of increasing the sales figures would be to do both, right? What was refreshing about Fantastic Four issue 348, cover dated January 1991, was it didn't even pretend to be a serious storyline, nor did it hide the fact that this was a cash grab. The world's most commercialist comic magazine runs the cover's tagline, as the then blazing hot artist Arthur Adams draws a cover with four of the hottest hitters at the Marvel U at that time, leaping at us, 
the reader. The Hulk looks natty and well-dressed in his shirt, pants and boots, and this is the grey Hulk of the then-current Peter David run. Likewise, Wolverine is sartorily elegant in his leather jacket, beige shirt and brown slacks combo. Spider-Man is... Well, Spider-Man, it's a classic look. Why change it? Hidden in the background, Ghost Rider blazes in. They even changed the corner box to reflect the new team. At this time, Wolverine was at his most popular and was headlining his own comic series, as well as being a popular member of the X-Men. Spider-Man was riding the crest of popularity, inspired by Todd McFarlane's run on the character, and Ghost Rider was inexplicably popular for reasons I can't quite fathom. Even the Hulk was hot at this time thanks to Peter David's excellent scripts and Dale Keown's crisp, clean art. What do you think of the cover, love? It's alright. I like Nuff Said Bub. Yeah. What do you not like about it? Oh, that's, it's kind of boring. Why? Why is it boring? I'm not saying it's interesting. I'm not disagreeing with it, you, but why do you think it's boring? It's just them jumping. Marvel's edgiest heroes. <laughs> of jumping. the time. Yeah. It's got a certain appeal. I do wonder if Jim Lee's fascination with the soles of boots came from this cover. Yeah. Because Arthur Adams gives the Hulk quite the soul. Wolverine does look a bit top-heavy. I, I like it as a piece of artwork. There's nothing actually wrong with it. Ghost Rider kind of is crammed oh. off behind the Hulk, given the, there's an extraordinary amount of white yeah. on this cover that maybe they could have filled with a better look at Ghost Rider, but since I don't care about Ghost Rider, I'm not that bothered. He's getting top billing, though. He is given top billing in the in the uh, the box out at the top of the page. Yeah, it was the time period as well. If there's a UK printing, so there's no barcode, so there's a little uh, little picture of the mole man there, which I thought was quite cool. I always used to like it when they did that. The title, "Where Monsters Dwell," or as it were, "Creatures Roam," is a nod to a few of Marvel's Bronze Age horror books, and it was written by Walter Simonson with art by Arthur Adams, art assist by Gracine Tanaka, and inking by Art Thibbert and Al Milgram. The Fantastic Four are dead. Shown their bodies by a grieving Susan Richards, Spider-Man, Hulk, Wolverine and Ghost Rider, a future Bendis Avengers lineup if ever there was one, take off on one of Reed's experimental gravity wave riders to locate the monsters of the Earth, which Sue says the FS killers have released. She also gives them a subphotonic spectroanalyzer to aid them, which will come in useful before the end of the story. However, when the Urzatz FF leaves, Sue is revealed to be using them to destroy her enemies while she gets on with an agenda of her own. Who are her enemies? Well, we'll find out later. On Monster Isle, the Mole Man watches as a starship of scroll design looses monsters upon the Earth to locate Delilah via brainwave scan. The Mole Man is displeased by this and unleashes his own pet upon them. As the Skrulls receive intel that Delilah is in New York, their starship falls into a crater that appears below them. Back at Four Freedoms Plaza, Pseudo revives Reed, informing him that the extended team members are caged and orders him to locate an inorganic technotroid, or ITT, or it, or she will kill his family. Reed does locate something, a UFO that matches the description of it, and they leave for the location. I just want it to look like Pennywise. Urzat's FF, meanwhile, have located a number of monsters and have engaged the enemy, preventing him from destroying a passenger plane. They follow the creature to Monster Isle and dive into the hole in the ground where we last saw the Skrull starship. They locate the Mole Man who has the Skrulls and is preparing to execute them. Mole Man agrees to let the Urzat's FF see them, but the captain has disappeared, which sets the Hulk and Wolverine about smashing up rocks to locate the shape-changing alien. The Skrull captain, not wishing to be turned into quarry fodder, 
reveals both himself, not like that, and his plan. A small rebel movement are trying to kill the Skrull Emperor, and the leader, Delilah, is on Earth acquiring the aid to achieve her goal, and they use the monsters to locate her. Spider-Man deduces they are being truthful thanks to the subphotonic spectro-analyzer that Pseudo gave them earlier. With polarity reversal, it can be used to locate Delilah. Who is here? With Reed. The Hulk wants her. Over my dead body, says Reed. Not a problem, says the Hulk. We've already seen Reed's dead body. To be continued. There's a lot happening in this comic. Is, is there? Did you not think? I thought, right, all right, well, we'll, we'll go through. The issue just starts and then keeps going. There's no splash page. There's a minor flashback recap. And then it's straight into the action. And to Simonson's credit, I thought that it was never confusing. I did think that colouring the flashback all in blue was a bit of a misstep. I can see what they were going for. They're trying to differentiate that this is a flashback of information, but it just looks a bit muddy, Mm. which could be down to the printing of the time. This entire comic looks quite muddy, given there's an awful lot of black in it, doesn't it? Yeah. Which is not a fault of the art, because I think the art's quite impressive. Uh, Ghost Rider comes across as a pompous arse. Is he always a pompous ass? Because I've only ever read one Ghost Rider comic, and we covered it on this show. <laughs> I, don't, I quite like Ghost Rider in this. Do you? Yeah. He's very... Gaze into the skull. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway, he doesn't say much, and when he does say it, it's um, it's kind of pompous. Yeah. In many ways, but alright, fair enough. Uh, page four, Adam's use of shading is very effective. He covers Sue Richard's face with Rembrandt shadows which is a really effective way of foreshadowing that this is evil Sue. Yeah. Or pseudo. I thought that was quite good. In fact, his artwork's pretty good all the way through. I thought it a little bit unsavoury that Reed seems to have the hots for evil Sue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's certainly like, well, it's a shame that I had to reveal that I'm an evil Sue before, you know, we got jiggy with it. But Reed doesn't care. But Reed's like, actually, that made it fun. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's thinking, well, Johnny's been with a scroll. And he didn't complain too much about it. It's not as though he's cheating. I and mean, it's, it's still so. Oh, maybe, yeah, there is that. Maybe it's a Captain Kirk Green Woman thing. Okay. That's that's my thinking. Until they shapeshift and they've got a big chin. Yes, and then that's then it's like doing Jay Leno. <laughs> which would be scary. Yeah. Quite frankly. <laughs> uh, I thought the fight scene in the middle of this issue was really brilliant. and really killed. The monster is attacking an aeroplane. And then the Hulk starts fighting that monster on the aeroplane. And then Spider-Man and Ghost Rider join in. And it was cool. Pretty good action set piece. Mm. Your face says otherwise. (laughs) The dialogue... I I wasn't a fan of the dialogue. Just Spider-Man and Hulk fighting all the time and Wolverine saying cool things. Yeah, I mean, I do like that Wolverine sits on his duff doing nothing. And Hulk calls him out on it. Hulk actually says to him, was it comfy? Yeah. Sat in Reed's space plane while we did all the work. And Wolverine says, ah, shut up. I thought that was quite funny, but all right. Pseudo calls the inorganic technotroid it. But Reed says it's a UFO. Yeah. Which confused me slightly. And it does look like a UFO. But, you know, all right. And on the way out, I love that Reed tells Roberta, the robot receptionist, to call in the Marines. That is totally code. Yeah. For, yeah, I'm in trouble here. Do you want to do something about it? Yeah. 
And as you would see if you read the next issue, it most certainly was. But then he just turns around and says, wait, no, Hulk, I'm going to defend this bad person. Yeah, it's a little bit contradictory, that, but there's a reason for him doing it, and it's all given in the next issue. So it's not that he's thinking with his head one moment and then thinking with his other head the next? No, 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 he, he is all perfectly planned. He does know what he's doing. The monster from the cover of FF number one standing on the Hulk's foot was funny. Yeah. As was them trying to find the Skrull captain. He's obviously turned into a rock, so Wolverine starts hacking rocks up with his claws, and then Wolverine, the Hulk, sorry, starts stomping on them until the Skrull guy just goes, Ah, oh, oh, don't stand on me! That was funny. Yeah. Okay. Then the bit where Moleman says, Oh, Spider-Man, why should I trust you? And Spider-Man doesn't say, Well, because I'm Spider-Man and you're the Moleman. But it works... They're fighting a common foe. Why Why do they not? Why would they not join together? Well, I thought that this was an incredibly dense read. Putting lie to the belief that all 90s comics were pin-up pages and extended fight scenes. This, I thought this was the exact opposite. The issue doesn't even begin with a splash. Instead, it's a collection of smaller panels and lots of dialogue, and it starts and doesn't stop. There's precious little exposition. Simonson brings us up to date with the plot as we go. It's an astonishing Fantastic Four comic in that the Fantastic Four are barely in it because hmm. that's not really so. The one that is in it, Reed Richards, never uses his powers. The art is hyper-detailed in an almost Perez level but Adams has a better command of structure and anatomy than any of the image boys. Jim Lee comes closest, I think, to Adams' hyper-detailed style but I don't think Jim Lee has... Art Adams' skill. I think... Go on. Lee's better. Do you? Yeah. Why? Why do you think that? Um, Art Adams, especially in this... Yeah. ...is a McFarlane clone. But he was a McFarlane clone before McFarlane. It's still that style, though. But, uh, but McFarlane was influenced by Art Adams, not the other way around. But Art Adams got better. He's better now. Do you think? Yeah. So he, I quite liked Maybe it. Maybe it was just the age... Maybe. maybe maybe there was a a subconscious art style of the 90s that everyone subconsciously followed they, no, there was no subconscious in it they were told to draw like McFarlane and, and Liffield yeah. sadly like Liffield um, it's a shame Adams is such a low a slow artist because you know, I wouldn't mind reading something like this on a, on a monthly basis I thought this was really rather fun the art's 90s but it's good 90s the story's funky and funny and despite featuring the poster children for Gritty and Dark, Ghost Rider and Wolverine, I thought this was quite a fun comic. I just wasn't a fan. Why, why not? What did you not like about it? I don't know. I, just, I didn't like the lineup. Okay. I wasn't a fan of the story. Okay. Well, you're not a fan of the story because you've come in in the middle and you don't get a resolution. I mean, I read all three of them. No, I just... It didn't make you want to check out how it all ended. No. Right, okay. See, I quite... I enjoyed this I thought this was quite a fun read alright fair enough Selavi say the old folks I don't think there's any interesting adverts in this one I'm flicking through it here and I can't see anything of interest no people still read books so hmm. no there's absolutely nothing of import is there so we'll, we'll put that to one side since Michael wasn't terribly impressed even though I thought it was okay <laughs> And we will go to our final issue this week, back over at DC. The Flash was a rather odd choice to have a new Flash-type hero introduced, as the Flash himself was already a replacement of a replacement, because, well, comics. 
Wally West had taken over the mantle of the Flash from the deceased Barry Allen, who had already taken over from Jay Garrick. Well, kind of. Irrespective of this, Barry died a hero and Wally then took over. Initially, Wally was a bit of a tool, and the book took on a decidedly more adult tone than pretty much any of the other DC mainstream comic books of the time, with Wally being a serial womaniser and hero for hire. He wasn't that likeable a character, to be honest. Fortunately, by the 90s, new writers had arrived, fleshed out Wally, introduced a pretty damn good supporting cast, and generally turned the book around. By the time Mark Wade welcomed artist Mike Waringo to the book, it was firing on all cylinders. Flash issue 92, cover dated July 1994, states that there's a new kid in town and he'll run you down. Drawn by Waringo, it features a young-looking lad racing towards us, wearing a red and cream body stocking. He also sports fingerless gloves and has very long, floppy 90s hair. He is emerging from a fireball, extra-dimensional thingy, and a shadowy figure is chasing him. Really rather elegant and eye-catching, aided immeasurably by the colouring job. What did you say? It's good. I was going to don't say anything bad about Mike Waringo. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a fan of Waringo, to be honest. I, I never, what? No, I'm just... I'm not a fan of his style. But oh. I've got nothing against it. I liked, I liked the art. I liked it in this. It's just not your bag, man. Yeah. All right. Fur dude. Reckless Youth Part 1 Speed Kills was written by Mark Wade with art by Waringo and Jose Marzan Jr. Linda Park, investigative journalist, is investigating journalistically. In particular, a story involving a cult that has hired a warehouse that, whilst at first seemed harmless, set the landlord's spider sense a tingling when he saw them worship a snake god. Linda swears she can protect the guy, so of course he dies when a bunch of snakes fall out of his cupboard. Linda does not tell her boyfriend, Wally West, a.k.a. The Flash, about the death threat she receives regarding this, but Wally ends up with more on his mind when his time-travelling Aunt Iris arrives from the future to tell him that her grandson has escaped, thanks to her, but due to his accelerated ageing, he's in deep trouble. See, the EarthGov of the future wanted to exploit Bart Allen, but his powers will kill him, and soon. The problems are doubled as Bart believes himself to be in a VR simulation. Wally needs to find him, and fast. Fortunately, fast is his middle name. Thanks to his friends in the Teen Titans and the JLA, Wally locates Bart in Gibraltar, but Bart tries to kill him. There's a lot of that going around as the Serpent Society also think it's time Linda Park met her maker. This was probably the slightest of the three that we covered tonight, did you not think? Story-wise, there was not really a lot to this one. Yeah. I thought there was more to the other two than there was to this. It's an excellent cold open, although Linda has an inordinate amount of her on page one. That all goes away on the next scene. Yeah, it all just disappears. I, I got confused. I thought there were two different people. Why? Because they look completely different. Linda looks completely different in the two scenes. Well, she's got her hair tied up and is wearing glasses. I mean, if you know nothing from reading comics... Yeah, yeah. ...is that glasses is a totally acceptable disguise. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I get your point. She does look completely different, but she's a woman and women do stuff with the hair and <laughs> that makes them look completely different, so... All right, I actually thought this was really good. These kind of openings can make the comic feel like it's auditioning to be a TV show. But this one was pretty damn creepy, mm. I thought. I mean, the snakes attacking the leaseholder is handled very well. He's probably wondering why it had to be snakes. And openings like this, I always want them to segue into the equaliser. Yeah. You know when somebody's going, ah! I always wanted to go straight into that. Yeah. That kind of creepy, 
opening sequence. Um, I like the page of the basketballs. Yeah, because is it the same basketball? It's the same basketball, it's not yeah. basketballs. But it's going really, really fast. Yeah, it's going really, really fast, so he just keeps scoring over and over it's again. doing and, the Ditko. And yes, essentially, that's, I think we should copyright that, <laughs> doing the Ditko. I love things like the scene that opens the issue properly, as Michael's pointed out, the basketball while he's playing with himself. He's playing basketball with himself, he's not playing with himself. That would be a completely different kind of comic book. And Linda's ignoring him, and his male ego just gets all bent out of shape. I do like, as well, Wade never actually ignored what went on before he took over the book, but used the elements of it that he liked, like Wally's gargantuan ego, Mm. and ignored the stuff that he didn't like. Well, I do like that, the Flash, in his secret identity, he's wearing a Flash t-shirt. He doesn't have a secret identity at this point. I mean, one of the things that they established very early on, I think it's back in Flash number one, everyone knew Wally West was the Flash. Yeah. So he didn't have one. So this goes back to what we were talking about earlier on. Image comics kind of refined that. Yeah. But DC had experimented with that with this. Wally West was known to be the Flash. Well, I still like he's got a Flash t-shirt then. Yeah, because it is, it's basically, you know, it's Jeff Johns who would get rid of that. Yeah. Later on, when he realises that, wait a minute, we have secret identities for a reason. Yeah. But, you know, at this point, there's no real point wearing a mask. Hmm. To be honest with you, everyone knows who he is. The dialogue between Linda and Wally is really good in this opening scene. Um, I mean, Wade does good dialogue anyway, but they have a far more realistic courtship and marriage than pretty much any other characters in comics. It was a real relationship that was well-written and, and developed as they went along. And there's a surprise appearance of a blur that even Wally can't see, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Because you don't find out what that is until later on. It's foreshadowing. Yeah, it's very good. It's very clever. Um, it's complete with the Back to the Future quote as well. Hello, anybody on McFly? Yeah. Which, again, is foreshadowing that this is a time travel tale. Mm-hmm. Which, clever, very good. Stately West Manor, as it says in the uh, the caption box, is not the home of Adam West. Mer Adam West. <laughs> but Wally West. Mer Adam Wee. But Wally West, um, well, he came into a lot of money that made him independently wealthy. I wasn't really a fan of this development, to be honest. Making a character wealthy is a little bit lazy in terms of explaining how he affords all his spare time. But Wally didn't really have a secret ID, like I've said, so that kind of limits his job prospects. Yeah. Well, you're the Flash, what do you want a job for? So I suppose they have to explain where he got his money from. Iris Allen is Wally's aunt. Uh, and was also Barry Allen's wife, and she now finds herself travelling in time from the future, every now and again, just to check up on our kids. Uh, Barry was sent to the future where he was reunited with Iris after the trial of the Flash pre-crisis, but was summoned back for the crisis on Infinite Earth, which is where he died. This could have all been very confusing. Yeah. But thanks to Wade's deft handling, it isn't. It's all exposition, but it's exposition, it has to go somewhere. When did they reveal that she was born in the future? Um, I think that was prior to... Was, this not, was that not in The Return of Barry Allen? I don't know. When we covered that? I thought it could have been because of the book. Yeah, because Wally's already read The Secret History of the Flash at this point. Yeah. So he knows that she's from... The, I think it was in The Return of Barry Allen. Right. Because I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of that, to be honest. Why not? Of her being born in the future but then coming back to the past yeah to me that kind of that kind of took away from the the relationship between Barry Allen and and Iris and her yeah alright 
Oh, so I don't mind it because she ultimately ended up back in the future. Yeah, so. I quite like that because it wasn't the way they got all that so they could be together. Yeah, Wally ends up in the future with her. But I like the more grounded relationship and marriage that, well, John's, I think it was John's, gave yeah. them before taking it away. Right. Okay, fair enough. But I quite like Bart. He's not really in this much. It doesn't really have a lot to do. Yeah. To be honest with you. But he's, he's got an interesting set of problems to deal with. His accelerated aging means he'll be dead in a week, which is kind of a bummer. He also has no idea what the real world is and believes the entire scenario to be a VR simulation. As with Yuppie last week, the use of VR as a plot point clearly sets this in the 1990s. Yeah. That was a big thing in the 90s virtual reality we all thought that by 2010 we'd have holodecks in every house I think we were convinced virtual reality was going to take over hey with the Oculus Rift now and the Xbox Connect <laughs> so they weren't far wrong yeah alright fair enough there's a lot going on in this issue it's handled deftly and clearly by Wade always a neat trick in a time travel story especially one where the central character Iris Allen clearly knows how it's all going to turn out thanks to having authored a book from the future that we've seen she will write. It's all very complicated, isn't it? So if Wally's read it, then? He should know that all this turns out okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Oh, maybe, wobbly. maybe it's a book that has blank pages until he lives. <laughs> until he lives past those bits it's, and then the pages yeah, get filled in. The spoiler-proof. <laughs> so he's writing a book. Like River Song's diary. Yeah, yeah. He's, as he lives, he's writing a book that's already been written. Yeah, reading a book that has already been written. Well, it's his adventures that are filling in the pages. Alright, fair enough. I can't remember what the life story of the Flash... I think the life story of the Flash was all about Barry. Yeah. It's more than it was about Wally. So why... Uh, why, go on. Is your head hurting? So why is he in the book, then? Unless it's about Barry and the Flash legacy. I think it's about... I think she just mentions that he becomes the Flash in the 20th century, as it was then, because by that point he's long dead. Yeah. And he doesn't have a secret identity anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, I wonder if she mentions in the book that he has kids, so it's no surprise to him when he has kids. Yeah. That's, I don't know. I don't know how much was in the book. Uh, the introduction of Bart's very well done, and the art is beautifully clean throughout. Waringo, I thought Waringo had a marvellous command of the basic tenets of comic storytelling. It's, his artwork is clean and cartoony, and like Mike Parabek, was just a breath of fresh air to comics in the 1990s also like Parabek he was taken from us far too early what did you think of this one? I, I liked it and especially since I the things I've read the impulse is a is not as annoying as Damien so going into this and seeing he's not in it much at all <laughs> so that's, that's quite good that was a good thing yeah he's not in it enough for him to annoy me I quite liked Bart Allen I have to say um, adverts, the end is near. Has um, Jean-Paul Valley's bat signal, bat signal, sorry, cracking, as it would as nightfall come to a conclusion. Night's End Part 1 gets a full-page advert, not a particularly well-drawn one. There's an advert for Batman The Collected Adventures, speaking of Mike Parabek. Bar known, the best monthly comic available anywhere is a quote by Matt Wagner. He wasn't much wrong. It was certainly one of the better Batman titles of this period. Superman Archives, Volume 4 came out. I like those Superman Archives volumes. But I've got the uh, Chronicles. I've got the first seven or so, haven't I? Mm. Seven. So I need the ones after that, if anyone wants to give them. 
In the end, there can be only one. Not an advert for Highlander, but an advert for the end of Night's End. Star Trek The Next Generation series finale, All Good Things, a special adaptation of the final episode of the series, is very good. Nice painted cover, isn't it? Mm. They all at least look like the actors, except maybe Gates McFadden, who doesn't. Uh, Night's End Part 2 gets an advert after an advert for the end of Night's End. Does that make any sense? Didn't make any sense to me. Speed reading was the letters page. One man, two worlds, and the end of all this is the DC milestone crossover event. Worlds collide. Rival nations. Not the one with the cover you made yourself. Oh, the one with the thing your cover where yeah. you put your own stickers on. I think it was an issue of Superman. I don't know necessarily if it was Worlds Collide. It may have been, I don't know. Six Flags is an advert. Uh, but the hot comics is a mega specials. What are the mega specials? Avengers 1, gold cover. Avengers 306... Oh no, Armourines 1, sorry. Limited gold cover. What the hell is Armourines? Don't know. It was selling for $80. It must be good. <laughs> oh, obviously, yeah. Avengers 368 and 369 have the X-Men in it, so obviously they're expensive. Avengers West Coast has the X-Men in it. Batman 499, first print, and 500 collectors. Obviously, it's Nightfall. Daredevil Man Without Fear. The rest of it's just the standard 90s stuff. Excalibur, Gambit, Infinity Crusade, Marvel, Sabretooth. Why is Sabretooth popular? I just don't get that at all. He's kind of like Wolverine, but not. Uncanny X-Men 304 has a hologram cover, Limit 2. Shadow Man Zero has a limited gold cover. That was also $80. Money well spent, I think you'll agree. There's a one limit to Spawn versus Batman. Really? Because that popular. Because it was that good. Wolverine 75 has a hologram cover, as does X-Factor 92, as does X-Force 25. And then there's just a bunch of $1, $2, $3 comics. What's in the $40 bin? Dr. Mirage. Freaks. With an X, of course. <laughs> of course. Shadow Man, Hard Case, Strangers. I don't know what any of those bestsellers. There's the usual 90s bunch, Lonely Place of Dying, Meeting Up with Judge Dredd, a bunch of Ghost Rider books. Why the hell Ghost Rider was popular, I have no idea. X Men, Wolverine, Edgy, you think? Yeah. That's what it was. And that covers The Flash. Um, so, what have we learned this week? Well, primarily that not all replacements were meant to be permanent and even the ones that were are still at the whims of changing editorial tastes. We've also learned that comics from the 90s were incredibly inflated in price for a time. Every single issue we covered today at one point was a high ticket item. I purchased all of these in the 50p bins except the FF issue that I bought off the stands. So I didn't pay above the odds for any of them. The most important thing we learned this week, I think, is that there were some excellent comics in this decade with crisp, clear art and easily understandable stories, even, as in the case of Green Lantern, when they are deep in the middle of a continual narrative. In fact, an argument can be made that each comic we pick tonight is more accessible than a lot of contemporary comics. Even more importantly, every single issue this week made me want to read the next issue. So compelling was the narrative in each. And yet, despite being all examples of the superhero genre, they were all different types of stories. The DC issues this week were probably satisfying in terms of character-based writing, with the Marvel comic being far more plot-driven, which is a remarkable turnaround from when we did the 60s and the Silver Age. Each and every issue this week I thought was demonstrably better than the books we covered last week, and despite the talent of all involved, these books seem more concerned with telling good stories about great characters with good art, not words people normally put together when talking about comics in the 90s. That's it! Unless you have anything to add? You just didn't like the Fantastic Four, did you? Yeah. That's a shame. 
Let's be honest, I think I only liked The Flash as much as I did because of Wade and Waringo. And you didn't like Green Lantern? No, I liked Green Lantern. It was alright. Yeah. Alright. But none of them would have made you... Maybe The Flash. So if you were reading comics in the 90s as a lowly 12-year-old, none of them would have spoke to you? Green Lantern? But the thing with, as much as I like Cal Rayner, I've never been able to read his Green Lantern stories. Well, start. I've tried. Why? I've got them all. Why, have you, why could you not read them? I just don't enjoy his stories as much as I enjoy him. All right. That sounds a bit weird. No, it doesn't. You can like the character more than the stories he's in. Yeah. That's perfectly okay. Alright, fur dues next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics. It's Changing Costumes Week. Yay! When we change the look action figures. of a character. Yeah, we can we can have some action figures if you want. We can't cover Nightfall, because obviously we've already <laughs> done it. And we can't cover Spider Man number one, because we've already done it, yeah. where Ben Riley gets the costume. So, what we will be doing next week is Superman issue 123, Electric Gliding Blue. <laughs> Fantastic Four issue 375, Sue with a boob window. And Web of Spider-Man issue 100, Spider-Armor! Oh, I like Spider-Armor. Oh, yes. Oh, I hope you'll enjoy our cards every single week. I hope you will join us for that. And uh, we'll, we'll hopefully see you next week. Bye-bye. Oh, 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 oh,